When it comes to niching, one of my biggest tips I tell people there now is it's a lot easier to decide what you don't want to do and who you don't want to work with than what it is to decide what you want to do and who you want to do it with. So if you reverse engineer it the other way, it's very easy to define. Yeah. And when I did it that way, it made me it, it made me so made it so much simpler to come to that conclusion. So I was told on day one you need a niche, you need to decide your ideal client. I couldn't determine them. I, I simply couldn't describe them. Whereas now I find it quite easy. Hello and welcome back to Small Business Financial Freedom. Today I'm really excited because I've got a fellow accountant on the podcast. My first fellow accountant. I did think long and hard about whether I would ask someone else who was an accountant, but then I thought, why not? And you're far enough away, Graham, that <laughs> you're not really any competition for me. I am half Scottish as well, so that's what it really is. Come on. Oh. Yeah, I've got a bit of favouritism here. <laughs> so this is Graham Tenick. He's got his own... Is that right, Tenick? Am I saying that right? That's right, Tenick. That's the one, yeah. If there's anything nasty you've got to say, it's something else. We'll think of another accountancy firm okay. by the end of this, all right? <laughs> He's got an accountancy firm called Tenex Accountants, and they're based in Newcastle. Is it Newcastle? Yeah. It is, yeah, just outside, but yeah, Newcastle. Yeah. The, the best football team in the world, people can relate to that. Yeah, well, listen, I've got two boys and a husband, and does this face look like it's interested in football? No. <laughs> well, it's the wrong colour, those glasses as well, so I don't want to comment on red. Yes, That's our arch yes, rivals. Yes, yes. So I met Graham in 2020, just before COVID, actually. And he's been a good source of inspiration for me. He's further along the journey than me. He's a lot bigger than me in, in that county practice. But he has he's very honest and he has a good take on accountancy and where accountants should be. So I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to him today. So anyway, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself, Graham. Tell us a bit about yourself and your business journey, how you started the business, where you are now. Yeah, well, well, first of all, thank you very much and welcome everybody listening. Thank you for your kind words, Susan. Before I started this journey, I had hair the length of Susan's as well. <laughs> um, so with this, say, the territory and the development comes a lot of uh, loss. I mean, I say it's just thinning a little bit at the back, but uh, I'm but trying it's to... But just... it's no white yet though, Graham. It's still dark. I know, but there's, you can dye your hair when it goes white. When it goes, <laughs> you can't do a great deal with that. Uh, I have to invest in a, in a wig or something. Oh, a um, lot of men are doing transplants nowadays though, aren't they? Well, I've taken on a client, not for that reason, but they actually do that sort of thing. So I may well be having a chat with them. So so when I come back on next time and look like Bob Marley, you'll be kind of thinking, what the hell's going on? I won't break the voice though. So my business journey, well, my business journey, surprise, surprise, started literally where I was born. What I mean by that is my dad had a forklift truck business. So he set up that business in 1981, one year before I was born. So I've been in and around businesses and business owners from an extremely young age. Now, that started from going into his depot and getting all of the rubbish jobs. I'll be polite. I won't say exactly Aye. another term which be used. Be yeah, let's say rubbish jobs in terms of I will be painting walls, washing forklifts. He claims cleaning toilets. I don't recall that, but hey, hope he wants to say I did that as well. So be it. And then working on forklifts, very basic. I'd probably be changing the light bulb rather than like working on the engine. But I did do a little bit of stuff from the engineering, but very, very basic things. But I was always surrounded by the business sort of side of things. 
Now, as I got a little bit older and the, my dad's business progressed a little bit, we got tickets at Newcastle United. So I was fortunate enough to go along with him. So we had season tickets anyway, which is personal tickets, but they got corporate tickets. So we went along there and I was fortunate enough again to be surrounded by business owners of various sizes, various ages, various backgrounds. So I was very fortunate enough to get that sort of business experience. And how old were you then, Graham, when you I went to the was, corporate thing? I want to say, I think age-wise, mid-teens, maybe 15, Aye. 16, something like that. Not that long ago, of course, but yeah, 15, 16. So I had that for a good few years. And now at this stage, obviously, again, I'm approaching the time when I was doing my A-levels and education-wise, like, what do I want to do? And I was like, I want to have my own business. Now, that is a stepping stone, is a pretty vague statement to make. And I was like, don't know what I want to do. But I soon established the fact I didn't want to go on the forklift side of things. Engineering and working on things that just wasn't, I didn't have the same passion that my dad did. No. Well, I'd stepped up from Saturday mornings, like um, summer holidays. It wasn't for me. And my dad is also called Graham Tenick. He's actually called Graham John Tenick. I'm called Graham's James Tenick. So Graham James Tenick, Graham's John Tenick. Imagine the confusion there. But I was just like, no, look, Dad, you've built a very successful business. You take that away and you've got that there. And for your own name, I want you to be remembered for that. I want to do something myself. Now, my dad actually bumped into somebody in a bank whilst I was doing an accountancy degree because that felt like a, a natural kind of like place. I said, I'll just set up a business further on down the line. And that person he bumped into the bank who he knew had an accountancy business. Says, oh, does just someone to come and do a work experience in between his degree? Just over the summer. So I did that and loved it. And I thought, oh, I could do this. I still had to go back the following year. They said, look, there isn't something, because this is at my end degree, there isn't a place there now, but we'll keep you posted. They bought a practice, asked me to go back, and that was the start of the accountancy journey. Oh. So, so working for somebody else in their work, business. Correct, yes. It was a relatively small practice. Yeah, I went straight in there off the back of my degree um, and studied to do my professional exams there. And towards the tail end of the time there, I was five and a half years, yeah, I was probably one step below a partner, but partner was never really on the table. And I was just like, you know what it is? I, I need a change. And PwC came knocking. So I thought, me going to PwC? I thought, yeah, I'll be honest. Ego alone was like, I fancy the idea of that. Because I hadn't got the grade today level or degree to go in automatically. So I was like, yep, I'll go and do that. Went and worked there. And did you like enjoy it. that now? Yeah. No. No, I didn't like the big professions either. I hated it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I really. There was times when I would be. I lived in Newcastle, and my kids, I'd get the taxi into work. I was running late, of rubbish weather. There's a times where I'd be sat in the taxi thinking, "What other career could I do? Could I be a taxi driver or anything else other than being an accountant?" It got that bad. But the experience I got in terms of the pressure and everything else around that gave me a good basis for everything which I've done since then, and also. It kind of gave me a platform because when you see what people see, people look at you very differently. And some of the things I did there, so I helped set up the outsourced audit function across in India. Um, offshore and outsourcing is obviously a lot more popular. We were the first of the big four to do that. And wow. I was involved in that. And then some of the other bits I did was really interesting. So again, it gave us a platform to then go forth. I then, off the back of that, I told you I could talk, Susan, mind. I might spend the whole time talking <laughs> my uh, journey. I Then two years in, I had a brilliant appraisal. And I thought, you know, as I fancy something a little bit different here, industry, there wasn't so many opportunities, but the opportunity to go to work at Northumberland County Council. So I was like, all right, it's, it's kind of the closest thing to industry. Oh, and no, then, that sounds dreadful. Oh, the political bleep that went on there. I was about to say, there's a meeting for a meeting, isn't there, in the council? 
Oh, we'd have to have a meeting about that to give you an answer. <laughs> I worked for the NHS for a short, short, short period of time, and I hated it because then nobody would make a decision. No, so it I was went just. I went to one meeting where they were trying to make a decision about a bit of land they didn't even own. <laughs> I won't tell you the other things, otherwise I could write a book and I'd probably get sued if I did. So, um, <laughs> but I went there. It was a senior finance position, looking after adult services and housing. Um, I did some great stuff there. It was really interesting things. I did the financial modelling for um, eight thousand. Sorry, overseeing the financial modelling for eight thousand five hundred sixteen employees in terms of sorry eight thousand five hundred thirty six employees in terms of single status. Um, I did a thirty year business plan for eight thousand five hundred sixteen houses. So eight I did years. Thirty, 30 years. Yeah, thirty year business plan. Yeah. Tell tell what me an account out there that's done a business plan longer than what I've done. I sure I should should be in the Guinness Book of Records somewhere. I was about to say, how the hell can you do that? I mean, you that's can't. impossible. That's impossible. Garbage. No, that even I ever got signed off. Well, I did it. I did it. Uh, then towards the tail end, I was the interim finance director at one of the um, sister organisations of the council. They wanted us to do that permanently, but I was just like, no, nah, I don't want that. I want my own business. And I was like, I thought, right, I'm going to set up my own accountancy business. I'm going to get engaged. I'm going to have expensive finance on a car. Then I'm going to leave a very well-paid job Turned down an even higher paid job than the council with security, and I'm going to start with a big fat zero. Zero. So I thought, sod it. So Sounds back, good. When so, was yeah. that? How many years ago was that? That was 11 years ago. Give no. or take, it's not, not too far for 11 years to the day. Wow. No clients? Nothing? I had four clients whereby I just did little bits on the side legally. I did little bits inside legally. Just be clear in terms of this. I don't want HMRC come knocking. It was done legally. <laughs> so I had four clients. So my biggest client paid me £250 a year window cleaner. And where were you? Did you have an office or were you working from home? Working from home. Working from home. Just you? Just me. Little old me. The excitement that started in terms of just being able to walk to the post office and go to the chippy for me lunch if I wanted it was right. overbearing. I couldn't commit anymore. I was like, right, I need to just do this. And how did you build it then? How did you build it from four odds and sods, £250, to what it is now? Well, rewind a couple of steps, because i best be serious about this. It wasn't an overnight decision, obviously. So I don't mind admitting this, and again, people will laugh. I was watching an episode of Gavin and Stacey, all right? <laughs> Christmas special, <laughs> Smithy rocks in, builders bum out and all that, and had his own business. I was just like, and it gave us a bit of a push, like, you know, I want the freedom of your own business. Yeah. So it was about 15 to 18 months in planning in terms of, so before I had me notice, it was a lot of work which went in before then. And I had a five, well, I had a three-month notice period, but I worked five, so I'd saved up money before I went in, so I didn't do it blindly. Um, so you so had I'd, some sort of, did you have a, enough money for how long did you think you would be about, able to survive? About six months. About six, six months. months. I yeah. was the same. So six months money put to one side in terms of living what we needed to do. And the plan was, was after six months, if I couldn't continue, I'd get another job. Yeah. I even planned for getting another job at half the salary I was on and I'd still be able to kind of make things work for a period in time thereafter because yeah. I wouldn't wait till month six. I would have probably been looking month four. But yeah, so started off from home and I raided my phone book. I went through every single person on my phone book to the point whereby I officially left the council around about September time, 2012. By March 2013, I was renting an office. Wow. I just, I just had loads of work. I was like, yeah, I need to just get out here and I'll be a lot more productive. And were um, you just taking anything and anything, anyone at that time? The absolute lot. And pricing? You were just yeah. sort of... Well, what I'd done is I'd built me pricing pretty much on the firm I'd originally worked on. 
and a little bit of a secret for everybody out there. I don't mind confessing it. If you see last year's accounts for a previous account, it's got the accountancy fee in, so you can see what they're paying already. Yeah, that's true. So again, a bit of a secret there, but I said I was going to be honest. But I'll have a look at that. Knew what costs I need to cover, and I had a baseline price. And it was built off the back of that. But yeah, and largely took anybody on. And was that just you still? You didn't have staff just at me. that time? No, just me. So you must have been working all the hours, were you? I was actually working a lot of hours, but I wouldn't say a ridiculous amount of hours. So like, yeah, I would probably pull in 40 to 45 hours a week. But I mean, for a startup business, I wouldn't consider that silly. No, no. That... I never worked a weekend, never. But I mean, what I was slowly doing, and this leads into further parts in the journey, which I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll grill us about, so I'm prepared for it. I was slowly <laughs> building the firm, which I first trained in many years prior. Yeah, the small business firm. Yeah. Yeah. But obviously times had moved on a little bit which yeah rocked the boat a little bit so you were still really doing compliance work yes yeah and i was a number of years beyond that but yeah i was largely doing compliance work in a manual way so it was largely we used i mean again one bore every with all the software but we used iris um and spreadsheets so it was excel and iris and that was yeah. pretty much it yeah and paper based records yeah and then you started taking on staff that must have been scary the first sort of Step taking on staff. Well, I cheated. So, and how I cheated, again, legally, was I recognised the fact that there was a bit of a gap in terms of capacity, which meant on occasions, it was usually on that course, I needed a bit of extra help in hand. I didn't need them permanently, but I needed a bit of extra help in hand. So what I did is I started inviting work experience people in. So whenever oh, I was busy, okay. I brought the work experience guys in. They got some ready-made work. They helped me out. I helped them out. Happy days. It actually meant I prolonged the length of time I needed before I hired somebody. And again, okay. if you have those peaks and troughs and it works, bloody hell, do it. But one of those people was brilliant. So, but they were experienced. I was like, I, this was towards the back end of 2013. And I was like, I'm not really sure I'm ready to take on a junior member of the team because that's a big, not so much cost-wise, but it was a big drain on my time. So at this stage, businesses continue to grow. I was like, I'm going to take on two people. Okay. So I took on a lady I already knew who'd been made redundant at the council, was also fully qualified. I said, look, if you're willing to take a bit of a, a gamble on me in terms of salary-wise, so what I can afford, I'll pay you this. I offered the apprentice, I'll pay them that. And as we get bigger, as we grow, I will increase your salary accordingly. And you just come and work part-time? And they both said yes. And so what were, were you profitable from the beginning? Yes. You were? Actually, I take that back. I was actually profitable from the beginning for tax return purposes. I made sure I made a loss in the first tax year. Yes, yes. So, and again, I won't bore people out the accounting terminology. But yes, as a business, I was profitable apart from tax purposes as a tax opportunity. Um, stress again, a legal tax opportunity in that first tax year, which meant it was worthwhile me making a taxable loss a in that first yeah. period. Yeah, But yeah, we were profitable. Yeah. So it sort of petered along like that for a little while, did it? Or did it grow quite quickly? It grew quite quickly. So back end of 2013, I'd hired the two members of staff. I'd commit to an even bigger office renting it. But then what happened is the company that it was like a shared office, it was a big building with loads of businesses in there, their lease, um, they decided to walk away from it. So it it left me with two new members of the team and nowhere to work. I was like, okay. I then spoke to a client who owned an office and they said, do you want rent off me? I said, no, I want to buy it. Um, property is my second passion. So I got into the property game whilst I was still fully employed. I said, uh-huh. no, I want to buy it. So I then got the wheels in motion and we bought our first um, offices, which completed 
well, moved in December 13. I think it actually completed January 14. He, he let us go in a little bit early. Okay. And the reason why I did it, again, I won't bore people with the mechanics in terms of the the maths and stuff like that, but it was already preoccupied. So I had three businesses in the building I was moving into. So already I had rental income, which exceeded yeah. the, the cost you, of the mortgage. Yeah, yeah. So were you still taking anybody in anything at that time or had you decided that you were going to start being a bit more selective of who you would take on board? Nope, that took me 10 years to realise I should have done that. Oh, right, okay. So I'm still taking anybody and everybody. That's good. I think it took me about three years. Then you have the scary, or did you have the scary of actually sacking clients? Oh, I I did that during COVID. I did that during COVID where I just moved clients on. But ironically, and again, it seems like too good a point, too good a time now to not flag up this point. When it comes to niching, one of my biggest tips I tell people there now is it's a lot easier to decide what you don't want to do and who you don't want to work with than what it is to decide what you want to do and who you want to do it with. So if you reverse engineer it the other way, it's very easy to define. Yeah. And when I did it that way, it made me it, it made me so it made it so much simpler to come to that conclusion. So I was told on day one you need a niche, you need to decide your ideal client. I couldn't determine them. I, I simply couldn't describe them. Whereas now I find it quite easy. So what's your niche then? My niche is threefold, but there's two in particular. So the first one is trade and trade-related businesses, but they must have at least three members of the team. So the business owner and two other members of the team. If they don't, time is that much of a battle. I just simply kind of get hold of them and get a meeting in the diary. And it just means that we kind of add the value. The second of the three niches is professional businesses that also support our industry, so ones we can relate to. Because I come from a background of trades and we are a professional service-based business, those two just fit in like a glove. We can make a massive difference to them. And the third one, but we'll do less so, but again, I say there are ones that say which drop in, drop out, are um, technology-based businesses. We do little bits and bobs with them just because we're so closely ingrained within the technology world. So those three, but predominantly we're wanting businesses whereby they want a business first approach and accountancy approach second. That's the key way in which we target it. So we can do the more, I'll, I'll say advisory-led approach, but I'll I'll put more detail on that a little bit further on when we get down the, the journey line. Okay. So for the first 10 years, you were still taking anyone and anything, right? Yep. You were growing. Yeah. From two members of staff to how many? 15. 15. So obviously you would have had to, have, or did you just stay where you are? And as the offices became available, you just didn't take on anyone else? Yeah, we just kind of moved around. The offices just rejigged a little bit. So we were initially upstairs. We took a bit more space upstairs than we took all of downstairs. Um, okay. So we still now have another two businesses in the building, but they take two smaller offices up from us. Um, so yes, but yeah, we did continue doing as we've done beforehand, taking anybody and pretty much everybody on. We did remain profitable. So again, we did do that, but we started going down two separate journeys where it's seen profits start to drop. The first one was when we started the software journey where we said we really need to kind of recognize replicating the firm I trained in is not the way to go because technology's moved on too much. So we invested a lot of money in software, um, right. which was the wrong software. So I had a dip on profits. And then prior to investing in the software, we'd seen productivity drop because, again, you have to work harder and harder for your money and work longer and longer hours, which, again, goes back to the point I said there before. 
in terms of that's when the hours ramped up. So those two steps really kind of seen a bit of a hit with profits. Then obviously the third one was COVID. COVID kind of hit. And that was when we regrouped. And I said, look, the team wasn't right. The direction wasn't right. So I regrouped. I, put, I didn't make anybody redundant. I didn't sack anybody in terms of that. But we regrouped and went from 15 staff to 10 staff. And we took off. Okay. And what changed? What so changed? You got, you got your software right. You tried all the various softwares. Yep. You found the ones that worked for you. That's the ones that you built around the business. You streamlined the staff, sounds like. Yeah. Were you still just doing compliance at that stage or had you changed? No. So when we started on the software journey, the software had opened our eyes in terms of what other possibilities were there. So we started getting involved in things outside the compliance. Now, for the benefits of those people listening, an accountant is far more capable than just being relied upon to just do company accounts, company tax returns and things like that. This is why Susan and I share a passion and the number of times we've chatted because we do more than that, we offer more than that can make a greater difference than that. The idea of doing tax returns and accounts is no more than really providing a year-end school report, knowing that's accurate, giving you peace of mind and reassurance that it's accurate. But really, we want to go a little bit further. In terms of one of the lines that I've, I've started using recently is we start where many other accountants stop. Yeah. And we yep. want to go a little bit further. We want to be asking business owners, where are you now? Where do you want to get to? And how can we help you get there? That's where it started kind of getting us further down the line. Yeah. But our initial thoughts on the software, it was the software would enable us to do that. But the software was just a means to deliver rather than a way to sell. Yeah. And that was it. We refined that to recognize that we needed to change how we actually were. And actually, ironically, go back to where I was at the very start of my business I used a process called the 135, where you have your ultimate vision, three goals, and then five objectives between beneath each goal. That helped me self-finance our wedding without any debt, pay off the finance to the car, and get our business where it was. I've now since went back to that approach to get business owners going from here to here, and the results are mind-blowing. That's good. That's good. I found that when the software sort of, when you started embracing the software, it meant it it made things a lot easier for you. So therefore you could spend time adding value to your clients because up until then you were probably spending all your time doing compliance on spreadsheets and things like that. And suddenly the software became so much easier to use and produce results for you that you could actually sort of add value. Did you find that? I did, but I think there was a journey which we went on, which I recognised depending on the various bits of software. So I think at the first point, me being me, I'm I'm naturally a positive person and I'm always inquisitive to the point where I'd see this software and I'm just like, wow, I love it. Right, that it's got to work. Yeah. But I recognised the additional steps which they needed to follow. So now I adopt, it's called a scale, it's a speed approach. So now I've got a three-step approach for software. The first step is research. Second step is prototype. The third step is implementation. So you do the research, first of all, to see, like, is there a need and is there a solution out there? You then, as say, do the research in amongst the team to say, look, can we do this? How might it work? What's the barriers? What's the opportunities? You also research your customers to see how best they, this might be incorporated then to see if it actually kind of pay dividends both ways. In terms of implementation, you get to a point where it's like, you don't just roll this out entirely expecting it just to work. You've got to test the water with things and expect and make people aware that things might well go wrong along the way. So you have that part in there. 
then you actually have, say, the final stage in terms of, right, okay, you've researched, you've done the prototype in terms of testing, you don't have the implementation across the board. So by way of the mistakes made, we have a very careful, structured way in which we then roll changes out there now, which ensure the mistakes we had in the past are not replicated. Yeah. So do you still take on small businesses or are they sort of well-established, the businesses that you take on now? It depends. So we have our three core niches. I'm not going to say we don't take on anything outside that because there are instances whereby we feel we can add value when it's the right fit. But we turn down a lot more work than what we take on now. We are very strict. We also don't hold anything back with regards to moving clients on. Life's short for the client and for us. Why trying to make something work, which is just not going to work? Yeah. We've had meetings whereby I refuse to quote for work. If you had a look at our Google reviews, you can see people in there, they give us Google reviews we've never worked with because I've said, to myself, look, this won't work in the right way how you want it to work. And I'll signpost them elsewhere. So I won't close the door and say, can I help you? I'll say, look, this would be a better fit for you. If you want to go on that path, you'll be far better off there. But there are times when we will veer outside our niche if we feel as it would be mutually beneficial. But we are very, very strict insofar as people need to tick the vast majority of boxes. Otherwise, one or both parties are going to be frustrated. Yeah, yeah. You need to trust your gut a lot of the time, don't you? It's a lot yes. of it's intuition. If you're talking to someone and you think this isn't going to work, you have to be honest with them and say it isn't going to work. Correct. There's yeah. no point in doing it because... I mean, I've done it in the past where I've thought this isn't going to work and I haven't said this isn't going to work in six months in. I hate, I absolutely hate working with them. And it just becomes a chore. So any small businesses out there, what would you say to them? Best advice you would give them if they were thinking of either starting up or they're maybe two or three years into their journey they're plodding along, but they haven't quite sort of made it yet, if you see what I mean. What advice would you give them? Probably the advice I'd give to them is actually the same advice for both, but it'll be interpreted differently. So the first advice I'd state, and again, it goes back to my journey, I'd say, right, okay, start with the absolute end goal in terms okay. of like, what, what are you going into business for? If you're already in, what are you in business for? What are you trying to achieve? So my vision ultimately was, at the age of 55, I want to be in a position to retire and live a decent standard of living. That was my ultimate vision in terms of just my personal things. I mean, I want the business to be operating free of me. Right. So that, that, that was a bit there. So people need to understand before they start trading, or even if they are trading, what's the end goal they are trying to get to? Right. Then they need to understand where they are now. Right. And, and at that point, they need to understand the extra cost of things going wrong. So you don't overcommit and deliver. Then you need to quantify that gap. Now, to quantify that gap often is where the expert will need to come in. You might need an expert to define the start and end point. At that point there, that is where the magic really happens because you can either kind of say, look, this is never going to work or it is going to work, but I've got to make these decisions at this point in time. And that's where like a firm such as ourselves, and I know you do a similar thing, Susan, can come in and we can hold people to account, give them the direction, give them the support, tell about the real life pain points of where we've got it wrong. You and I aren't perfect. We've made mistakes. We yeah. are make mistakes. We will continue to make mistakes. So anybody that thinks we're perfect, bollocks. Mm-hmm. We're not. But at the end there, we will hopefully be able to kind of galvanize, certainly in my instance, 11 years worth of experience to give people that journey. So hopefully they can get it right within two to three years rather than taking 11. And I still haven't got it exactly where I want it. No. So what's your day like now compared to 10, nine years ago? How has it changed? Um, 
I work less hours. So I do now work, I say, in that, so like I say, probably early stages, I'd maybe working 45, 50 hours max. In the height of things, I could easily work 60 plus hours. I'd say now I work not more than 45 hours ever, really. Okay. Probably nearer 40. I don't do a great deal of the day-to-day stuff. So if you want to ask me a tax question, I don't know the answer, probably. If the team do that, like, I mean, I do. I'm joking on in terms of this. I'm still fully qualified, but I've got a head of tax. I've got a head of bookkeeping, a head of, a head of bookkeeping accounts, head of tax, head of advisory. My business can operate without me. Okay. So I don't do, even a lot of the meetings, I don't tend to do as many there now. The meetings I do are the meetings which I need to be part of where I can kind of make the greatest impact, make the greatest difference. But my rule there now, and people take the make, but it's fine. I don't care. I love it. My title is Chief Legacy Maker. Right. Okay. That's my job role. I need to build something, not a legacy for the future. I need to build a legacy now for both the team around us, people externally, that friends and family thereof will be proud of. That's my job role. Okay. So chief legacy is for your firm. No, chief legacy for everybody. For everybody. When I'm chatting to business owners, I'm saying, what's the legacy you want to live and what's the legacy you want to leave? Okay. So clients don't come to you now. So you you wouldn't get someone sort of phoning up saying, no, I need to speak to Graham. Or do oh, you, you do, but you won't get through to us because one of the team will answer the query. They won't pass oh, it right. through. Okay. If you really I... had to, so again, I don't want to sound like, but yeah, he's a social bugger. Uh... If they really had to, but my team are trained there now to deal with those sort of queries so clients know, and I know when a client really needs me, they really need me and they know I'll be there for them. Okay. But ultimately, it's it's not the best use of their time or my time in terms of that. So it's a case of I'm here when they are near me, but I've trained a team around me so that, because the last thing I want is, say I'm not here for whatever reason, a business going under. Aye, yeah. That can happen. What about new businesses, though? Do you still find the new businesses or do the new businesses just come to you and say they come and say, I'd like to speak to Graham. I'm a new business. I want to speak to Graham. Does that so, work? Yeah. So in terms of that, I see two things. So new business, yes. In terms of that, I see that is largely me. Okay. In terms of it. But also what I would say is, I say there are instances whereby new work is found by other people. Okay. So I see they will see it and there might be new opportunities for existing clients or something like that. There are any number of opportunities whereby it isn't me. It doesn't need to be me. No. And how do you find new businesses now? Is it just oh, is it networking or? A little bit. So we do the networking side of things, but a lot less so there now. Google, referrals. Yeah, it's it's, it's such a wide, wide area of things. We do always ask there now, but yeah, we've got a lot, a lot of work via Google, but referrals is always the biggest thing. Okay. And it's one of the things I always say to the team, if you leave a positive feeling, leave someone with a positive feeling, a positive reaction, they can only spread positive words about you. Yeah, that's true. And do you spend time working on your business? My time, 95% of my weekly time is spent working on our business. At least 95% of my time. And do you do things that all businesses should be doing? So like budgets and cash flow and checking your cash flow and making sure everything's sort of up to date and right. Do you do all of that? I do, but I also delegate a lot of that to the team because, again, if I'm not transparent with the team so they don't fully understand what's going on, when it's going on, and why it's going on, we then unintentionally create a silo. 
and we create a degree of just total separation from what's going on. Whereas my team get a monthly staff bulletin to know exactly how the business is doing. And I share the numbers with them. I've got nothing to hide in terms of it. If I'm asking them to do the day-to-day things, they need to understand why and what impact that's making. So by being very honest and transparent with them, I, I empower them to help things out so that we can help them out. Okay. And share the rewards at the same time. So this podcast is called Small Business Financial Freedom. I wonder, do you feel you have financial freedom at the moment? And what does that mean to you? I think financial freedom is such a wide-ranging mean. It has such a wide-ranging meaning to it. Do I have financial freedom? It depends what you compare that to. I am happy and I feel privileged to be where I am, but I wouldn't consider myself to have full financial freedom. My interpretation of financial freedom, and this is ultimate financial freedom here, and this isn't something necessarily greedy or anything like that, no. but I always say I want, and what I'm trying to build is five pots from which will support me financially. Any business which is the primary or only means by which it's going to support somebody in terms of living a life post-work or even during work is one individual that's very vulnerable. So in terms of that, just to give you a bit of an idea of things. So yes, the business is a big supporter in terms of how I live, but I also have rental properties, a further big support. I also have money or pensions, which I've put, which obviously I can't access yet, but I say pensions will come. I also have money investments. I also have money in more readily accessible things in addition. So I have a mixture of things, but I wouldn't say if my business went tomorrow, that would call, sorry, I would say if my business went there tomorrow, I'd have an issue. Okay. So that's why I wouldn't consider me myself to have the full financial stability I would want. I would want my business to be able to go tomorrow, which hopefully, fingers crossed, in touch with it won't, but I have several other options in the pipeline. That's what I'm working towards. Okay. So some people have said to me in the past when I've spoken to them about financial freedom, that financial freedom to them means taking a whole month off in the summer and their business can carry on and they don't need to be there. That's what financial freedom means to them. Or something as simple as leaving the office to pick up the kids from school every day. Yep. That's financial freedom to them. So in that respect, would you say that you had financial freedom? Yes. Yeah. And like I said before, it is relative. And financial freedom, I mean, I said the ultimate goal, it's a stepped approach. So, yeah. I mean, really, for many people, it is a case, you know, is if I want to take a bit of time off the family, things aren't going to kind of burn down. It's like that could be a very simple but first step to take that. The next, it might be a case of I want to be able to take a week off or a weekend off and not be pestered on my phone. That's your next step in terms of I want to, be able to take a month off and know I'm absolutely okay. Yeah. Mine is the ultimate, ultimate kind of goal in terms of that. But it's also a case of, and with any, any business, any business of any size, you need to take it a step-by-step approach and just as say, wait a little bit of time. I mean, I'm a member of the 1% club and you kind of think, what a boring name of a club. But it's one of the best clubs going out there because 1% compounded every single day leads to a phenomenal change in your business. And that 1% is not be 1% monetary, 1% time. Find 1% of your time back every day by making a change. So yeah. I don't manage my emails. I don't. Biggest time steal I've got out there, I don't manage my emails. Wow. You see, I spend, I get up in the morning and that's the first thing I do is every morning I spend about an hour and an hour and a half just dealing with my emails and then I start work. Yeah. It's the biggest time steal I go on. And if I did it first thing in the morning, the only thing that can come out with an email is ruining my plan for the day. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so now I'm not checking. No. So the one percent club's quite interesting because you know it's a bit like profit first, which we both know about. Yeah. Profit first says that you start off by putting one percent of your income into a pot yeah. for profit for for you sort of thing. Yeah. And I think the majority of small businesses nowadays, the person, the business owner or the entrepreneur is the last person that's paid. Yep. They work the most and they don't see themselves as the most valuable asset, which is what they are. Yeah. And it's difficult, or I sometimes find it difficult with my clients getting that concept across to them because they will see, I don't have that 1%. Mm. And I say to them, but 1% is nothing. You know, 1% is... Now, one percent. If you if you get something in for a hundred pounds, you put a pound away, sort of thing. It's nothing. Have you found that difficult getting that? Do you get? Do you sort of sell that concept to your clients? And have you found it difficult? Yes, I'll say rather than sell, I encourage my clients to adopt that strategy, and I too adopt that strategy because ultimately, being brutal, anybody says they kind of put one percent to one side is lying. Okay. Because ultimately, if they can put 1% to one side, I'll say, right, okay, tell me the zero wastage in your business. Yeah, yeah. There is not one business, not even Amazon has got 0% waste in the business. Everybody's got wastage. If you cannot find 1% to put to one side, let me have a call with you. I'll find the 1%. Yeah, yeah. And that that's the critical bit. And I often talk the accountability ladder. It, it, it's garbage is saying, don't, don't operate below the line in terms of accountability ladder. Operate above the line. Because yeah. they say you can find that one percent. Blair, if you can't find one percent, just get half there. Get fifty pence. Yes. If you get fifty pence, put fifty pence to one side, then we'll bloody prove you can get the other fifty percent. Fifty pence. Because they say you can find a pound. But once you start with small, not very exciting, but sustainable changes in your business, and then you get the momentum, so that one pound goes to one pound fifty, maybe one pound twenty-five. So maybe not go to one pound fifty, and then you develop it. Then you grow it and you follow the process. And like you say, the same applies to times what does money. It's like, you know, is you're not going to go from 50 hour a week to 35 in a year. No. Or, you, or you'll struggle. Why don't you go from 50 to 49 to 48 and a half to 48? And then literally just like start chipping away at it by just doing certain things. And you'll find the inefficiencies which will allow you to do that. And just stop. I mean, yeah, like in terms of, I mean, the big thing for my emails was a case of, I get on average 100 emails a day. Oh my God. On average. And I was like, <laughs> and, and all I'm doing is operating via everybody else's time scales and everything I've planned to do and committed to do with clients, I'll fail on or I'll work silly hours. Yeah. Can it work that way? No. I quite like the idea of 1% of time. I never thought about 1% of time. I think that's quite a good, it's a bit like, um, What's the boy that wrote Atomic Habits? Is it Atomic Habits? Uh, yeah, James Clear. Yeah. Yep. And he says the same, just start with something small yep. and start doing it every day. And before you know it, you'll build up the momentum. But I never thought about 1% of time. That's quite a good one. I'm going to pinch that. Yeah, no, you have it. Well, well, I do it with the kids. 
So what I did with the kids, obviously, again, during lockdown, spent so much time with the kids. I was like, you know what? I really enjoyed taking the kids to school. It was kind of like a bit of a break to the day. And it was the only time you got to interact with other people legally. So it was like, so what I've done is every single Tuesday morning, unless my way on business, but my way on business, there has to be another morning. Every Tuesday morning, I'll go for a run, come back, get ready, and then I'll take the kids to school. And I only get in the office about 10, about 10 past nine. Yeah. So, I mean, granted, I get in a little bit late on what I would do. Usually, I might get like half eight. But in terms of, like, of the working day, I get the office 10 minutes later. Yeah. And the kids really look forward to me taking the school. I say, Daddy, you take school? Yep. Yeah. You know, it's a Tuesday. Yeah. Yes. And I'm the same. I'm like, yes, Tuesday, take the kids to school. And I love it. Sounds good. And I think that's probably a good place to finish and say to small businesses, Find 1% of time. Look at your time and find 1% of time. Like you say, might be half an hour, might be an hour, and just build it up that way. So I'd like to say thank you for being part of the podcast. It's been really interesting hearing about your journey, hearing about setting yourself some goals, which is what I think you're talking about. I always think it's interesting. You're the second person that said to me, define what you want at the end sort of thing. And I I said to them, I never thought when I started up, I didn't think about the end. I just thought about, you know, how am I going to survive on a day-to-day basis? But I think that's probably a good way to think about it. What's your end goal? Think about the legacy you're living and think about the legacy you're leaving. Yeah, yeah. I never thought about it like that. I'm thinking about it now because I'm getting older. <laughs> we all are. You, you, you do start to think about your legacy when you're getting older, don't you? Yeah. What the hell am I leaving behind? But that's quite that's quite good as well. So thank you very much, Graham. Hope thank you me. enjoyed it, everybody. My name is Susan Crichton, SJC Placero Accountants. You want to get in touch? Please do. Thank you. Thank you.